Well, good morning. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Luke 16. Luke chapter 16, as we work through our sound issues a little bit here. And we also work through the book of Luke. We've been uh, traveling through the book of Luke and we've arrived at Luke 16. Luke 16 has kind of a dark tone to it, so I've worn a dark outfit to match today. The flip side is, what could be more pleasant and bright than a mustache, right? Nothing says comfort like a mustache on a preacher. (laughs) Luke 16. Let me pray for us as we begin. God, thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you for teaching us. Thank you for warning us. Thank you for being here by your Spirit. I pray that we are all transformed by an encounter with the living God today. And by your word, you will mold us more and more into Jesus and show us Jesus today. Show us his heart. Show us his heart so that we might bow down, that we might change, that we might respond, that our affections for him might be roused. And we might turn away from our sin. Be with us now, God, as we learn under you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. I want to pray. pray. I want to play a little game here. It's a word association game. And it will be depressingly easy for you. But nonetheless, I'm going to say some names and you think what thoughts come to your mind as I scroll through a list of names. All right. Kevin Spacey, Harvey Weinstein, Louis C.K., Dustin Hoffman, Jeffrey Tambor, Steven Seagal, Brett Radner. These are all famous Hollywood people who have been accused of relationship abuse. I'll spare you the name of political names. The list is familiar as well. I'm not saying these people are guilty. I'm just saying they're in the news now for being accused of heinous abuse. In fact, Los Angeles just announced this week that they were opening up a special task force in LA just for people who abuse their relationships. I wonder, what do you think when you hear news like this, when the headlines are dominated by people who are using their power to abuse others, what goes through your mind? Maybe you think, how dare they? That's awful. Or man, I hope they get treatment. Or I hope they're made to compensate to the victims that they have hurt. And maybe you begin to move beyond the they to the we and ask questions like, how can we do better as a society? Or where are we headed? Or how can we be a part of the solution? And then maybe you are able to move beyond the we to the me. I think God would have you do that as you catch these headlines in your news app. I think God would also have you glance over at your own Facebook page 
And I think God wants you to read these headlines and examine yourself. And you say, wait a minute, I've never abused anybody in my relationship. What do you mean? Uh, that's not the point. Uh, the point is, though the traps and temptations that trip others up may be different, they're stemming from the same dark pit that create these villains in our headlines. It's the human heart. And I think God would have you examine your heart in light of the current situation that's going on. Thankfully, the first century physician, Luke, speaks to these matters in our text today. Jesus himself would use the example of people in power who abuse their relationship. But he used those examples to warn us, to warn us of the treacherous tendencies of our own hearts. So today when we read this, this isn't a sunshiny text, a text where you come to church and Jesus mats your hair up and he pats you on the rear and sends you back out to play. That's not the kind of text this is. This is a warning text meant to shock you, meant to sober you up, meant to help you navigate through the world with the serious warnings from Jesus himself. Jesus is serious because he knows heaven and hell lay in the balance in our relationships. So today in Luke 16, we're going to look at hearts and habits that hasten hell. Hearts and habits that hasten hell. What I mean by that is we're going to be warned that our relational actions prove what is in our heart. Our relational actions prove what is in our heart. And the coming judgment for godless hearts is severe. Jesus makes that crystal clear today. Anyone who does not submit to Christ's new way of loving God and loving neighbor will be punished. Those who fail to follow Him are doomed to torment. And that's what Jesus is saying for us here. Let's jump into the text here in Luke 16. We'll start about in the middle of it. But before we jump in, I want you to remember where we've been in chapter 15. You might remember that uh, chapter 15 was set up by Luke as a defense of sorts for the heart and the actions of Jesus. Specifically, Jesus would go around and he would spend time with sinners and scoundrels. And it was shocking to people and they said, what in the world are you doing? So uh, chapter 15 was given to be a defense, to vindicate Christ's action. You remember in chapter 15, there were three stories. Jesus told stories about uh, a son, sheep, and silver, and they were all lost. And they were all to be found. It was to illustrate the amazing love of God for all people. And this was to vindicate Jesus' weird actions towards people. He was showing, he was demonstrating the mercy of God towards us as he reached out to the downtrodden. Conversely, chapter 16 now serves as a warning. He's going to use it to serve as a warning to all those who are in power, especially in power because of your wealth. But it serves for anybody in any relationship that has any kind of power. God uses this text to warn us about the seriousness of our hearts and our habits and our relationships. So let's look in verse 16. That is chapter 16. Verse 16. 
and we read this. This is Jesus talking, and he says, The law and the prophets were until John, and since then the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. Probably meaning there through self-denial, we are forced into the kingdom of God. Verse 17, But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become Void. So as we dip into the conversation here where Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, you've got to remember the Pharisees weren't exactly Hollywood movie stars, but they did have power. They had power in their culture because they were experts in the Old Testament law and so much of what the Jewish people did in the day of Jesus was, was within the context of the Old Testament norms and laws. Just think about what Luke tells us about Jesus' own birth. Christmas is coming up. You'll be reflecting, hopefully, on the birth of Jesus. Remember what happened when he was born. We're told that he was circumcised on the eighth day. And he was presented on a certain prescribed day at the temple. He was presented as a special firstborn son. And then they made appropriate sacrifices. All of this was done because Mary and Joseph were Jews. And they were following the Old Testament system. And the Pharisees were able to rule over this system. And Jesus was saying that now from uh, Moses to John the Baptist, in this timeline, the Old Testament was the normative structure for God's people. But now, Jesus is saying, now that I have come, there's a dawn of a new age. In my ministry, something special is happening. Everything that was looked forward to in the Old Testament is now coming true in Jesus. There's a fulfillment, if you would, a consummation. A broadening of expression. It was just in the last couple of weeks that the uh, social networking services, Twitter, expanded its number of characters, right? From 140 to 280. And when they announced they were going to do this, they announced that they were doing it because in different languages, it takes more characters to say the same thing. So they broadened it from 140 to 280 to allow the speaker to be more clearly heard, to fully express themselves so you can hear the heart of whoever is making the tweet. Similarly, Jesus is the clearest expression of God's ways. God expanded his communication to his people when Christ came, and it sharpened in Jesus. The way we're supposed to live is, is, is so much more in focus now because the living God has come among us in Jesus Christ. And that's what he's saying here. And that's the preamble to all he's going to say about our relationship. He's saying, you've got to realize things have changed. God's ways are even more clear now. And that clarity should empower you never to abuse your relationships. And always to put me at the center and follow me. And that's where Jesus is going here. He's going to address a couple of different types of relationships. And he starts here with marriage. He starts with marriage. Because within our most intimate relationships, we'll find hearts and habits that could actually hasten hell. Hearts and habits that could unwillingly lead us to hell. Look in verse 18. As we examine our hearts and our habits in marriage. So after shining a spotlight on the reality that Christ's coming bursts this new era in the way God is going to communicate to His people, Look what Luke does here. It's kind of curious because he inserts one brief saying from Jesus about marriage and the whole rest of the passage 
is about a different type of relationship. So he just gives us one line about marriage. And here it is in verse 18. It too is dark. Jesus says, everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. You think, why would he insert this one line here when he's talking about abuse in relationships? Why does he just stick one sentence here? What's going on? Well, it's because he knows relationships are bound to be electrically charged. There's bound to be sparks within your most intimate relationships. Reminds me of a story. I heard about a neutron that walked into a coffee shop and he saw his old friend. He had a relationship with him. His name was Proton. And he walked up to Proton and he said, Proton, how much for some coffee? And Proton said back, for you, Neutron, no charge. <laughs> That's not over. There's more. Neutron said, Proton! Are you sure? Proton said, I'm positive. <laughs> I love that joke. <laughs> ah, but relationships are charged, and Jesus knew it. And so he brings up the fact that they can be easily be abused. What's going on here? Well, remember, if you look back in verse 14, Jesus taught on money to the Pharisees because he was trying to expose their greed. He's taught about uh, the love of money and, he, and what happened in verse 14 when they heard it. The Bible says the Pharisees who loved their money, they heard all of Jesus' teaching and they ridiculed him. Money teaching exposes greed. Marriage teaching is going to expose our inner impurity and our propensity to leave. And that's why he's bringing it up. Another way to say this is the way that you abuse your power in relationship will expose a godless heart. If you're abusing power in relationship, you're exposing your godless heart. Here's a couple reasons why I think he's going down this road here. You might think, well, how, how is this mentioning divorce and remarriage? How does that, what's that have to do with power? Well, here's, here's something. First, you may know that in Jesus' day, only the men usually had the power to divorce. It was just the way society worked. Very rarely could a woman divorce. So only a man had the power to end the marriage. right? An easy divorce seemed to be the norm. Seemed to be rampant in Jesus' society. Was fully accepted in the Greco-Roman society. And within Judaism, it was going strong too. So much so that one of the most prominent rabbis was able to say, and he actually wrote this down, Men, you can get a divorce if you see a woman that's prettier than your wife. That's all the reason you need. They didn't need hardly any reason to divorce. And the Pharisees were condoning this. And Jesus knew it. They were, they were permitting divorce for silly reasons. And Jesus knew this was an abuse of power. So recall, Jesus is out to expose hearts and habits that lead away from God and to hell. In contrast to the religious teachers, look what Jesus says here. He's crystal clear in this text. He says, to divorce and to remarry is 
adultery. Within this text, he gives us no good reason to ever even think about leaving the fidelity of marriage. In fact, in all the other New Testament texts, there's only two exceptions given to this. One is if your spouse cheats on you. The other is if they abandon you. Jesus is very serious here. Jesus is urging men in his day to come to grips with a lifelong commitment to one woman. They're not just free to abuse their power and kick their wife to the curb. That's one thing in the text. There's another thing here. Understand that now, even though we aren't living in the first century Judaism, everyone in a marriage now has power. Everyone in a marriage now has a certain power, and that power is to show off the gospel, right? The power of a Christian marriage is you have now been invested with a wonderful superpower, and that is to show the world and one another how the gospel works. Marriage is one of the most sacred of all things for a lot of reasons none the least of which is the fact that within marriage, in a special way, the Scriptures say you get to show off how God relates to His people in Jesus Christ. One of the central messages of a together marriage is this, I will never leave you. Sometimes people see this, say this in their marriage vows, and it's beautiful. They say, I will never leave you. That's exactly what God says to His people in the Old Testament. So much so that prophets like Jeremiah When they see unbelief, they label it adultery. They see unbelief and they say, that's spiritual adultery. They use marriage terms for unbelief because they get it. Marriage is supposed to communicate communicate God's togetherness with His people in Jesus Christ. This I'm not going to leave you type of love is what marriage is about. It points to the nature of who God is as a covenant-keeping God who sticks to His people. That's what marriage is about. And we can abuse this power to display this to the world by walking away. And Jesus knows it, and He warns here the Pharisees and us not to walk away from our spouses. Don't do that, He says. It will destroy the vision I have for everyone seeing the glory of Myself as the coming Christ. The glory of God. Jesus says, do not walk away. So you can see how his words have a sharp focus here. As if he's saying, if you truly love the God of the Old Testament, you'll seek to show him off brilliantly by living out the beautiful commitment of marriage. Oppositely, he's also saying, if you really seek to leave your wife and seek another, this habit reveals a heart that does not Love the living God. And as we'll see in a moment later in the text, Christ is also going to sharpen the Old Testament reality that if you reject God, if you walk away from Him, destruction is coming. But in response to this text, I just want to say a couple of things. I want to speak to a couple of different types of people. First, those of you who are in hard marriages. Those of you who are in hard Marriages. In one sense, that's all of us because marriage by nature is really hard. If you're married, you're in a hard marriage. But I want to give you comfort because even in your hard marriage, God promises to be near. 
He's near and He understands your pain. In fact, He's an expert in extremely painful covenantal relationships, right? He's been in it with His people for thousands of years. He knows the pain of broken relationships. And you might have this question in reading this text. You might have the question, well, if God allows for a divorce and a couple of exceptions, abandonment, and infidelity, adultery, would he also allow me to walk away? Right? Are there some other outs that I could take? And it's a really hard question. It's hard to answer why God only mentions two exceptions here. The exception of adultery and the exception of abandonment. It's not from this text, but it's from other New Testament texts. You might think, why does he only mention two? We're not told that, but I suspect that both adultery and absence do a type of fatal damage to the one flesh union in marriage that other sins do not do. A different type of damage than someone saying mean words to you. That happens in marriage, right? People will disrespect you in marriage. They won't care for you. They'll withhold affection. But it seems that there's a type of fatal damage done by adultery or abandonment that really cuts at the one flesh union. It brings a challenge that other challenges simply do not. But I want you to know, if you are in a hard marriage, this church is willing to walk with you. We're not going to shun you just because you mentioned things are really hard in my marriage. In fact, hopefully we'll come closer. That's the way the church works. I want you to know, don't run from the church if you're in a hard marriage. You might be tempted to say a statement like this. I know I have been. I don't know if I can take blank in my marriage anymore. Ever thought that or said it? I just don't know if I can take, I don't know if I'm strong enough to take blank in my marriage anymore. She belittles me all the time, right? Or he doesn't respect me. Or she meets, she mistreats me in front of the kids. You should hear some of the things that she says about me in front of the kids. He no longer pursues me romantically, and I can't take that. I'm not strong enough anymore. Worst of all, she roots for the Tar Heels. That's not that serious. But there isn't a married couple here who hasn't had to persevere through some of these really hard friction points in a marriage. But perseverance is possible. And I want to tell you how. The hope, I hope this is hopeful to you, the hope is in the beauty and the work of Christ Jesus. Actually beholding what we have in Jesus frees you up when you're not getting what you exactly feel like you deserve. Does that make sense? Beholding what you do have in Christ and seeing that is truly valuable, it frees you up to take some blows, to take some shots when you're not getting what you feel you deserve. So maybe she insults your manhood. Christ is worth more than that. Look to Jesus. He doesn't value my creativity. He doesn't really understand me. Christ is more valuable. Don't turn from Him. Without her, I'd have my freedom. I hear that. If she wasn't around, if I wasn't around her, I would have ultimate freedom. No, you wouldn't. No, you wouldn't. And Christ is worth more than that anyway. 
2 Corinthians 4.4, the Apostle Paul writes this. You might remember that text. Paul writes that Satan actually blinds the eyes of unbelievers. What does he blind them to? What does he keep unbelievers from seeing? Paul says, Satan's ploy is to keep unbelievers from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. That's the essence of turning away from God, is you're blinded by Satan, and you don't see the beauty of the glory of Christ anymore. And you go after something else. That blindness can linger in believing hearts as well. That's because that's where we started. We won't see fully the light of Jesus until the consummation. And he comes again. But right now there's some lingering blindness. We are shunned from the full glory of Jesus. We forget that only he pursued you in God's glory. Only he chose life and then death. For the sake of redeeming God's people. Only he purchased you forever. Only he fulfilled God's plan. For all redemptive history. Only he defeated Satan. That's beautiful. Only he triumphed. In the resurrection. Christ is saying don't throw all of this away. Just because she yells at you. Jesus is worth so much more. Your husband's not meeting your expectations. Never forget that Christ has met everyone. And he can and will satisfy you in himself. Jesus is worth far more. And in essence, he's saying, if you're walking away from your marriage, you're revealing a stone-cold heart that's walking away from Jesus himself. But seeing his beauty can free you up to persevere in an imperfect marriage. Second, I just want to speak for a moment to those of you who are already divorced, or maybe you know someone who's going through this. I want you to know that the past, painful, I can't even imagine how much it hurts type of experience you've gone through doesn't have to define you. Okay, It does not have to define you. I want you to know it's possible to reach through the murk and the mire of a broken marriage and grab onto your identity in Jesus. That's what defines you. Your identity is in child of God. That's who you are. God doesn't look at you and label you divorcee. Absolutely, He does not. He looks at you and says, you're mine. You're mine. And I love you. He doesn't define you by your failures. He defines you by Christ's successes. Ligon Duncan said this week, and he's talking to some hurting people, if you've gone through a divorce, you might say, you know, the frame of my faith, like a bad car in a bad car wreck, it's just total. It's been messed up. My faith has been wrecked so bad by this divorce, it's messed up beyond repair. But Lig Duncan had this quote this week. I read it. The quote says this. It's not the quality of your faith, but the object of your faith that will hold you up. It's not the quality of your faith that will hold you up. It is the object of your faith. That is Jesus. You're defined by the righteousness of Jesus Christ. When he died, he placed his goodness over all of your sin and over all of your shame. That includes any dings or dents or scratches 
or structural damage that's been done to your faith through a messy divorce. Jesus covers this up. This church doesn't view you as second class as God doesn't view you as second class. In fact, for you awaits the fatted calf, the gold ring, the robe, the feast of being with Jesus Christ. You have hope if your identity is in Jesus Christ. But Jesus is offering us a severe warning here. He warns us that if we abuse power within our relationship by walking away or seeking another or yearning for another, we're headed down a path towards destruction. Our hearts and our habits in our marriage can lead us to destruction. He illustrates this more in the following verses if you want to look now to the book of the passage. That was just a teeny bit of the passage. The book of the passage is a story. It's just like Jesus. He's going to speak to two different types of people. Speak a little bit to you people who don't like stories. You just like accountants and you like and gives one line about divorce. Some of us, though, we like stories a lot, so the rest of the whole chapter here is going to be a big story. It's a parable about relationships. If we look here, beginning in verse 19, we'll see what he's talking about. Verse 19 says this. Remember, this is Jesus talking to the Pharisees about power. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. So the main character of the parable are introduced here. There's an unnamed rich man named Lazarus. I mean, unnamed rich man and a poor man named Lazarus. Lazarus should ring a bell, right? This is the second Lazarus mentioned in the Bible. The first one is Lazarus from Bethany. Um, Jesus heals him. He raises him from the dead. There's nothing that makes me think this is the same person. This is a story about a guy named Lazarus. However, the name is not coincidental. We'll get back to that in a minute. But the point here is Jesus aims to teach us about the crucial nature of how we treat the relationship between ourselves and people in poverty, people with less money than we have. Let's keep reading here. Verse 22. After introducing the characters, there's a plot twist here. The poor man dies. Was carried off by the angels to Abraham's side. What's Abraham's side? Well, Jesus is now picturing the afterlife. He describes a state we commonly call heaven or paradise. And he's also going to describe hell. The poor man is said to be resting in the bosom of Abraham. He's resting with the patriarch of God's people, Abraham himself. He's resting in a faithful place. But if you keep reading... The rich man also died and was buried. And he's now in Hades, being in torment. And he lifts up his eyes. This is the rich man. After dying, he lifts up his eyes and he sees Abraham far off. And he sees Lazarus with him. So what does he do? Verse 24. He calls out. He says, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. 
He sees Abraham and mercy being bestowed. And he wants some. He says, have mercy on me too. A sin Lazarus over here. Let him dip his finger in the water and cool my tongue. For I'm in anguish in this flame. You're supposed to feel the torment he is in now for rejecting God. He ends up in hell. The implication of the story is he's suffering the consequences of his cruel neglect of the poor in life. And now in death, his dooming sin is greed. And in death, he is tortured. He once had the power to help poor Lazarus. But he refused to take any type of loss so that he could help the poor man. There's something very interesting here you can note. Note that apparently he never reached out to help Lazarus. But here in the story, we know he knew his name. He knew him enough to say, hey, over there, that's Lazarus. I know his name. But how does he view him even in hell? He views him as a tool, as a stepping stone to get what he wants. He's still not repentant. He only wants relief. Read on, verse 25. Abraham responds. Again, keep in mind this is a story. We don't know how much of this is literal. But we do know that Christ felt the freedom within his story to paint a picture for me and you. A reality where the people in hell can actually see the people in heaven and vice versa. And they can communicate. And so Abraham communicates back. He says, child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things. And Lazarus in like manner received bad things. Especially from the rich man himself. But now he's comforted here. And you are in anguish. God's justice is served. This theme of reversal of fortunes goes throughout Luke. Here we see earthly status flipped on its head. And we are meant to see the seriousness of ignoring the poor. Continue on in verse 26. Abraham says, and besides this, besides the fact that you neglected him and never cared about him, Besides this, between us, Abraham says, between me and Lazarus and you, the great chasm has been fixed in order that those who had passed from here to you might not be able. It's not a matter of intention with Abraham. Oh, how he would love to go and comfort those in hell, but he cannot. There's a distance. None may cross from there to us. You can't come to where I'm at. I can't come to where you're at. Whatever we take from the story, we should heed this warning. After death, your fate is sealed. This is not purgatory. This is permanent. There's a big chasm between heaven and rejoicing and comfort and hell and torment. The glory of God's justice in punishing the unrighteous will not waver. There's no second chance if you reject Jesus in this life. Look at verse 27. And so now he, that's the rich man, he says this. He changes his tone a bit. 
It seemed that he might have accepted his fate. Well, look what he said. The rich man said, well, then I beg you, I beg you, Father, send him, that's Lazarus, send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers. I love my brothers. Let him go and warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. Abraham says, well, they have Moses, they have the prophets. Let them hear them. Let them hear the law of God. Let them hear the Old Testament. The rich man begs, verse 30. No, Father Abraham, you're not getting it. If someone actually goes to them from the dead, then they'll repent. That's the clue. What led him to hell was his lack of repentance, right? Because that's what he cares the most about in his family. Send somebody from the dead and then they'll repent. Listen to the answer in verse 31. Well, if they don't hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Now, I want you to see three things here. First, among all the horrors of hell, one ghastly torment of God's wrath is the haunting reality of your loved one's own fate. Did you notice that? He is haunted by the fate of his loved one. The rich man begs for somebody to go and be with his most intimate family and provoke repentance. No doubt he regrets any chance that he had to shine the light of God's glory to his family. Man, what does that say about Thanksgiving? Right? We have a chance. Shine the light of God's glory at Thanksgiving. Well, you don't know my family. I don't. I don't know your family. But I know Jesus. And I know he's not joking about heaven and hell and the seriousness of it. If you have an opportunity to shine Jesus at Thanksgiving that you wouldn't normally have, I say take it. I think the rich man would say take it. Something else. Secondly, Jesus says here the Old Testament witness should be enough. That is to say, the glory of God is clear enough in the Old Testament to point to the coming Messiah, and you can have faith there. Faith can be born by reading the Old Testament and longing for the Messiah. It's not void of power. Just because ethics has changed when Jesus came in the New Age, doesn't mean the Old Testament is powerless. Jesus says that should be enough for people. And finally, notice the irony of Lazarus's name. It's in full view now. I don't know if you caught it, but thoughtful readers, when they hear Lazarus mentioned, their mind is going to go to the man who was raised from the dead. Heard an unbeliever say this week, uh, Lazarus was the first member of the zombie apocalypse. Zombies are cool to talk about in our culture right now. And they, they even unbelievers associated Lazarus' name with somebody coming back from the dead. You're supposed to make that connection. And if you read through John, it becomes clear that Lazarus' resurrection was just the beginning. It was just the tip of the iceberg. It was to point and be a sign for the resurrection of Jesus himself. And so what 
is going on here in the passage now becomes a little bit clearer. The idea is even Jesus' resurrection power will not convince those whose hearts and habits love money. Jesus' resurrection power will not convince them because their heart has been stolen away by the temptations of money. So we can summarize the story like this. The way you treat the poor will reveal your love for God. The way you treat the poor will reveal your love for God. I'm almost thankful that he doesn't go into a list of great things we should be doing for the poor here. He uses a story. Stories are broad. They're supposed to take implications and impulses from stories. He's not giving you a list of laws. Do this for the poor. Don't do this for the poor. He's just painting a picture, and the Spirit moves through the story itself. Paul speaks about it in this way. You might remember 1 Timothy 6. Speaks of the dangers of wealth. And by wealth, I mean if you have more than somebody else. I don't mean you're super rich. It's a comparative term, right? There's someone in your world who has more needs than you. Paul says this, For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. What did the rich man take out? Nothing, right? At this point, you might argue and you say, Now, wait a minute, Pastor. It's true, I can't take anything with me, but what about my kids, right? What about Travis Jr. and Juliet? If I give anything away to the poor, that's less they'll have for college, right? I remember when I was in high school, the number, like it or not, the number one pop star at that time was Garth Brooks. He crossed from country to pop, and he was the it, and they interviewed Garth Brooks, and they said, how do you feel about yourself? And he said, I feel so great. He said, why? He says, because I've made enough money in this five-year career to feed my children, my children's children, and my children's children's children. They'll never have to think about money because of what I did during this five years. And you might be tempted to think about that. I can't give anything to the poor because it takes away from what my own family has if you think that way, I just want to ask the question from the text. After death, what was the rich man's concern for his family? He didn't say, go to my five brothers. Make sure they have access to my money. He didn't say that. He said, oh, make sure they repent. But make sure they're not like me. Make sure they turn away from how they're living with their money. Make sure they repent. All concern for financial well-being pales for the rich man in comparison to what his family could learn about faith, what they could learn about repentance through the handling of their finances. And your kids are going to learn this too. If your kids watch you regularly, freely give your stuff away, that's going to say something. If your kids are like mine, when you talk, they don't always listen to you. But when you act, they're a part of the action. It, it impacts them. And they're now drawn in to what it looks like to be compassionate. And you have good opportunities this Thanksgiving, this Christmas, to show some specific charity. But I'm going to tell you, 
Those are good opportunities, but they're not as good as the normal. Kids are smarter than you think. They'll catch on. Oh, every Christmas we have to do this. But the rest of the year, we ain't going to give anything away. Kids are smart. Live a persistent lifestyle of charity, and you will teach your kids what it means to have faith and repentance and dependence on God alone. Paul says more in that 1 Timothy 6 text. Verse 8, he says, But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. He doesn't mention savings here. If I were writing this, I would say, if we have food and clothing and savings, we should be content. Paul says, if you have food and you have clothing, be content. But those, and this is where he gets really serious, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into what? Ruin and destruction. That's Paul's plain talk about hell. He says ruin and destruction. He's not just talking about going bankrupt. He's talking about hell here. For the love of money is the root, the root of all kinds of evil. And it's through this craving. Hear the inner soul talk there? It's through this craving, this longing, that some have what? They've wandered away from the faith and they have pierced themselves. They've pierced themselves with many pain. What's so striking about what both Paul says and what Jesus says is the level he's treating greed, right? It's life and death. He's talking about piercing yourself and wandering away from the faith. I read an article this week from Consumer Reports. and It's talking about cars, people who buy new cars. That's not me, but if you're buying a new car, you have an option of all these add-ons, right? Some of the popular ones were blind spot monitoring, a USB port, um, lumbar support can warm you, right? All those are add-ons to the car. And then I saw another add-on, and it was spare tire. (laughs) Now, I don't drive a new car, so I don't know what comes with a car, but the article said spare tire is now an add-on, usually, with cars. And I was like, what? That's no add-on. You've got to have a spare tire. Maybe if it's new, you don't. But I want to tell you, charity to the poor, to Paul and Jesus, it's no add-on. It is central to the faith. I say that because he brings up hell when he talks about greed, when he talks about charity. He brings about your eternal destiny and doom. It's a very, very serious subject. I was reading this week about the aforementioned stars in Hollywood who are being accused. And some insightful writer, one prominent writer wrote this. Here's what they said. They said, what's striking about the charges leveled in recent months is the extent to which misconduct was an open secret in the relevant communities, right? Listen to this. They kept getting away with it, not because nobody knew, but because the people who knew treated it this is key, as something that was maybe wrong but fundamentally unimportant compared to an important man's work. Do you get that? Jesus seems to know how people work. If we see somebody who's greedy, like the rich man in this parable, here's what you're going to be tempted to think. You're going to be tempted to think, oh, he may be a little greedy, but look at the tech empire he built, right? Ah, oh, but she's a phenomenal artist. Right? That's what's important. That's the essence of 
who they are. They're a business tycoon. They're so talented. Man, that's who they are. Maybe they need to work on greed a little bit. That's, wow, really got to appreciate who they are. We're often willing to overlook power abuses in light of the strengths of someone else. So here's my question. What success in your life are you using to justify your lack of charity to the poor? What success in your life are you using to justify? Could be ministry success, right? Well, I'm not very good at giving to the poor, but I am good at singing or teaching. You know, it's a good question to ask you. I dare say Christ is not impressed, right? Christ is after your heart. He wants a heart dependent upon him. So how do we fight briefly? How do we fight against what Paul calls senseless and harmful desires to love money more than Christ himself? Like previously, you steer your hearts and your habits to see Jesus for all he is worth. When you see Jesus for all he's worth, it frees you up from wanting to hold so tightly to the resources that God has given you. Consider the forgiveness of Christ. It's through his death that you stand Forgiven. He accomplished your forgiveness. And through the resurrection, he validated it. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 17, if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. The death and resurrection of Jesus accomplished your forgiveness so that you can stand forever before God and he won't condemn you. He'll accept you. Death is coming. That's clear from the parable. Death is coming for all, rich and poor. And there will be a day when you can stand forgiven because of Jesus. That is valuable. Let's treasure that more than money. The rich man table will come and go. But the forgiveness of Christ is forever. Consider the lasting glory of Jesus. Long after Falls Lake, Trump Tower, those things will pass away. Jesus will still be beautiful. That is something to behold. Hang on to that. What about the love of Christ? Even in Luke, he heals the leper. He's giving sight to the blind. He's feeding thousands. Man, I love that guy. The guy I want to be. Consider him. That's who you have. You have Jesus. You can give away money to the poor. Consider his empathy. Just this week, I was talking to some friends, and we were talking about our marriages, and we were talking about the male habit uh, when, when the wife was speaking and said, you know, there's, there's this thing that happens when I'm hurt and when I'm emotional and I might be crying and I'm upset and my husband might come over and what he might do is say, what's the matter? You know, what, what does that question mean? <laughs> that question means, I want to get to the root of this problem. I'm, I'm even willing to go around you and I want to fix the problem. That's who I am as a husband. I'm a problem fixer. That's what guys like to do. I'm so thankful Jesus isn't that, right? Jesus did come, and he fixed your sin problem, but he did much more than that. His rescue operation is very personal. He's showing you compassion each and every minute. He's coming inside you by his spirit because he wants to know you so intimately. Thankful for that. That's beautiful, and I value that more than my possessions. Consider the nearness of Christ. Writer F.B. Meyer says this, 
He says, we know Jesus personally, intimately, face to face. Christ does not live back in the centuries, nor amid the clouds of heaven. He is near us. He is with us, compassing our path and our lying down and acquainted with all, acquainted with all of our ways. But we cannot know him in this mortal life except through the illumination and the teaching of the Holy Spirit. We could surely know Christ not as a stranger who turns in to visit for the night or as the exalted king of men. There must be an inner knowledge as of those whom he counts his own familiar friends, whom he trusts with his secrets, to eat with him of his own bread, to know Christ in the storm of battle, to know him in the valley of shadow, to know him when the solar light radiates our faces or when they are darkened with disappointment and sorrow, to know the sweetness of his dealing with bruised reeds and smoking flax, to know the tenderness of his sympathy, the strength of his right hand, all of this involves varieties of experience on our part, but each of them, like the facets of a diamond, will reflect the prismatic beauty of his glory from a new angle. I invite you to see the beauty of Jesus. See him in the Spirit, see him in his words, see him in his people. Long for that and trust that that is better than wealth untold. Let's pray together. God, I do pray. I pray that you impress upon us that we have hearts and habits that can hasten hell. You see it in the story of the rich man. If we're holding on to anything tighter than Jesus, we are dooming ourselves. But God, I pray for faith and repentance, the type of faith that looks to Jesus and says, you're my treasure. You're number one. You're all I need. The type of repentance that says, I'm turning away. I may mess up again, but I am turning. I am admitting. I'm confessing. I am saying the old way is bad. And I'm looking towards the new. God, help us to respond in humility and triteness, but oh, with joy in Jesus as we seek to reform our relationship. Help us do that now. In Jesus' name, amen.